The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm glad you made it out this morning. Um, I'm going to need some help if you guys can, or I'm going to make you stand up and do some calisthenics with me this morning. Um, So I rushed through the sermon last week a little bit, and I got done a little earlier than I thought I was going to, um, and uh, had to make some changes on the fly for the second service. We're trying to learn this new service kind of order, the liturgy, how things are, how each service feels a little bit different. Um, Last week, this was the more reserved, quiet, uh, let me say introspective, thoughtful, deeply thoughtful, group, all right? So, but I'm going to ask that you would maybe be a little more, help me out a little bit this morning, be a little uh, responsive, there we go, expressive, less like a library, whatever. Uh, If you could do that with me, I'd appreciate it. Uh, We do, I just want to apologize too, just for the, I know the, the, the parking lots and the sidewalks are not perfect, they're not how we would want them to be, and we've had a lot of trouble with the city and getting everything uh, up to par this week. It's been pretty nasty, you know, so hopefully Nobody broke a hip on the way in. That's, that's our prayer this morning. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray. We're going to jump into this. You can see I'm uh, stretching it this week. Took three verses on instead of just the two from last week. So let's pray and jump into it. Father God, we, uh, we thank you that you promised to meet your people here. Um, that we get to come together with brothers and sisters and we get to worship you, our one true king, our one true God. And you promise to be here with us and for us this morning. And God, no matter how our week, our month, our year has gone so far, um, our one great need is to hear from you, to see you, maybe to feel you, to experience you, to know you in a greater way. And we can't make that happen on our own. We are powerless on our own. And so we need you to warm us. We need you to reveal yourself to us. We need you to speak to us. And so we ask that you would do that this morning through your word and through me, your servant. Father, I pray that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords. That it would be all of you and very little of me this morning. And you would just help us um, experience some of your gospel. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can open up your Bibles to Colossians or maybe your scripture journal if you brought that with you. Now, this is our second week studying Paul's letter to the church in the ancient city of Colossae. Last week, we learned that this city wasn't much different from our own. It, was a des- it wasn't a destination city. It was a little off the beaten path and it had kind of lost quite a bit of its original appeal. So much so that the Apostle Paul, uh, he went from city to city to city, planting churches and making disciples. He actually never showed up to the city of Colossae. Uh, This church had been planted by a man named Epaphras, who became a Christian under the preaching of the Apostle Paul in another city. And after Epaphras' conversion to Christ, Paul said, all right, you've got the gospel. Now I want you to go to this backwoods town of Colossae where you're from. And I want you to preach the gospel. And I want you to make disciples. And Epaphras does exactly that. And he starts preaching the gospel. And surprisingly, even in this pagan and kind of religious scenario, people start coming to faith. And as people come to faith, they start meeting together in little home communities. We call those things missional communities. There, they just called them the church. They would meet in people's homes. They would gather around the apostles' teaching, and they would break bread together, and uh, the gospel would shape their lives. And uh, that was called the church. So there's this church in Colossae, and 
this city is a lot like ours today, right? It's got all kind of different religious out, um, religious viewpoints, religious streams kind of pouring into it. Colossae had the, the religions, we would say the religions on the left, Roman gods and goddesses and all the mystery cults. These were more spiritual in origin. They were sexual. They were kind of immoral in a lot of ways. We would, we would label those more progressive or liberal in our day and age. But they also had the religion on the right, the strictly, staunchly Jewish faith that was way more conservative and moralistic. It was about doing the right things, and it was about um, obeying all the rules, let's say. So this young church is being pressured from the right and from the left to conform. And many young Christians are really trying to, what we said, how I labeled it last week, they're trying to have Jesus plus religion on the right or Jesus plus religion on the left. They were trying to make Jesus kind of an accessory to their life and not central to their life. They were trying to follow Jesus and fit in with their really conservative neighbors or follow Jesus and fit in with their really liberal neighbors. So Epaphras is preaching the gospel. This is kind of offensive to them all. And Epaphras gets thrown in jail. And it just so happens, right? Flip a coin, go to jail. You're probably going to find Paul there. Paul was in jail, right? He didn't have to pay rent. Right? He was a tent maker, didn't have a tent. So he's just like, I'm going to preach the gospel today, get thrown in jail. At least I get a roof over my head. No, that's not what he did. But he's always in jail for preaching the gospel. And so Epaphras um, gets thrown into the same jail Paul's at. And Epaphras starts doing kind of what any church planter does. And Paul does what any kind of uh, apostle does. He starts asking Epaphras, okay, so how's your ministry going? How's the church going in Colossae? And Epaphras lets him have it. Right? You never ask a church planter how the church is going unless you're ready for a long-form answer, okay? Because he's aware of everything that's going on. He's aware that people are being moved to the right and people are being moved to the left. And there are some that are being sexually promiscuous and there's some that are still going to uh, the, the synagogue and they're still being circumcised and they're still doing things that were, they're set free from under the law. And so he's letting Paul know just exactly how it's going, and Paul writes this letter to keep uh, the Christians in Colossae from Jesus plus fill in the blank, right? Jesus needs to be the center of your world, the center of your universe, and everything else needs to sit in the periphery outside of that, and you can't have Jesus plus anything in the center. And if you do have Jesus plus something in the center, that's apostasy, or how I labeled it last week, that's called folk religion, right? Folk religion. So if your politics and Jesus are on the same level, you are living in a folk religion. That's not authentic Christianity. Or Jesus plus whatever. It could be a great thing like your family, your kids. If that's what's at the center, then you, your life has actually lost its controlling force. It's lost its gravity, we would say. So now that was last week. This morning we get to look at something special and unique about Christianity. We get to see kind of specifically how the gospel works in a person's life. And we get to see this from two different perspectives. We get to see it in the life of brand new believers. So the believers in Colossae, but we also get to see it in more seasoned believer in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, many people, they believe the gospel is only for those who don't know Christ. They think outsiders of the church, outsiders need the gospel, while insiders, we need Sunday school, right? We need more teaching on things about deeper things. We want to talk about eschatology, big words. We don't really need the gospel anymore. We want something. Well, tell me about the beasts. Tell me about the books in Revelation. Tell me about the trumpets, pastor. That's what I need. Well, no, actually, that's not what you need. What we learn as we study the scripture is the same gospel that saves us also sanctifies us. Now, that word sanctify, that's an old word. It's a Bible word. But it means to progressively become more and more like Jesus in our character 
and our conduct. So in our text today, we learn that Christians never graduate from the gospel and move on to other things. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message so deep that we can drill down into it and we never reach its bottom. And for those of us who have been a Christian for a long time, this is important for us. We need not to move on to other things. We need to kind of swim out into the gospel and learn how to dive deep into its depths, to kind of go down deeper into it and maybe see what lies undiscovered there. So today we're going to see how the Apostle Paul does that himself. We're going to learn some of his tricks of the trade. So put it really simple, today we're going to look at how the gospel changes people from the perspective of Paul the Apostle and also the perspective of relatively young Christians in Colossae. So first let's take a look at these young Christians. Let me ask you, what does it mean to become a Christian? What exactly is a Christian? Well, Paul gives us a really clear answer here in verses three through five, and it has everything to do, not surprisingly, with this word called gospel. Look in verse five. It just says in verse five, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, if you've been around Sacred City for very long, or you've just sat here in this service, you already know we use the word gospel more than any other word around here, right? We are a gospel-centered church. We say that we love gospel hospitality and gospel preaching and gospeling one another. There's a big reason why we love this word so much, It's in the words of Paul right here in verse 5, the, quote, word of truth. So it has, it's a word of truth. What does that mean? It has a very specific content. It has a very specific message, all right? So that's one side of the gospel, content and message. But also in Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 16, the apostle Paul says that the gospel is also, quote, the power of God, for salvation to anyone who believes. So here it is. The gospel is more than just a message. It's also a personified force or a power that gets the stuff of salvation done. It gets the stuff of salvation done. So the gospel is actually out there doing work. And we're going to see that in verse 6 next week. It's working in the whole world, the apostle says. Okay? So let's drill down into that just a little bit. What is the gospel? Well, the word gospel is the Greek word evangelion. And that's where we get the word evangelical. Now, the word evangelical has kind of lost a lot of its meaning today. Evangelical is more than just a voting block, right? We, We hear about all these evangelicals out there. Right? Well, the word evangelical means gospel, means good news. And the evangelical voting block might have actually have become unmoored from the gospel itself. Many people would call themselves an evangelical, and yet they don't even know what the gospel is. But in Paul's day, this word evangelion, it wasn't a religious word. It wasn't a conservative word. It was a word that literally just meant good news. Now, I want you to think of it like this. This is kind of hard to do. I had this illustration, and I realized this is a little dated illustration, but just, it won't be dated for most of us in here. Do you remember the thing of watching live TV? Do you remember live TV? And do you remember sometimes when you're watching live TV, and like a special report would come on, right? Right? Think of the gospel as like a special report. Typically, a special report would come on. It would interrupt your daily activities, and it would tell you news. Now, it wasn't always good news. A lot of times, it was bad news. Something really bad has happened, right? But the gospel is like that. It's like news that comes to people. So it's more like the special report than like a commercial, okay? A commercial comes on, and it's advice, right? Or Maybe manipulation is a better word, right? It's getting behind your psychology, right? It's getting behind your desires and it's telling you, trying to convince you that you want something and then it's trying to convince you to open up your Amazon and order that thing right now in this moment or go and buy it at the store, right? 
Many people think the gospel is like that, that it's good advice. It's here's what you need to do with your life or here's how you become a better person or here's how you make a bigger impact or here's how you create a legacy for your life. No, 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 the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news of something that has actually happened. So what Paul does is Paul takes this everyday common word that was used in the Roman Empire when a new king was put on the throne or a new emperor would rule. A, a writer would ride into town and he would pronounce the gospel, the evangelion. There's a new Roman emperor, right? Or a son has been born, right? He would come in and he would announce this good news. Paul baptizes this normal everyday word and he gives it, he kind of infuses it now with all this Christian meaning. And he's trying, he uses it to describe what has now happened in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of this man called Jesus Christ. Paul says, what Jesus has accomplished, that's good news. Something that's happened out there has nothing, in a sense, has nothing to do with what you're going to do or how you respond to your behavior. The gospel is something outside of you that God has accomplished in history. So the content of the gospel is everything that Jesus has done to save his people from their sins and bring them back into relationship with him. Now, I don't want us to just think of the gospel as historical fact because the gospel also has implications of what Jesus is doing now and what Jesus is going to do in the future. The future restoration of all things, when, when Jesus Christ comes back and he renews and restores all things to God's original vision and he gives us this new heavens and this new earth and all sin is wiped away and all tears are gone, that's the content of the gospel as well. Okay, so I don't want us to lose sight of like, there's a historical reality of what Jesus has done that's part of the gospel, but the work Christ is doing now as the ascended King of Kings and the work that Jesus will do is all included in that same gospel. Okay, so there's a present power at work in us. That's the second piece. So from Romans 1, we see it really clearly that the gospel is also a power let loose in the world that makes salvation stuff happen. So the work of new creation, the work of restoring and redeeming and healing, the gospel is at work right now doing that work. Now, what kinds of things does the gospel do? Well, one thing we can see is look at, let's look at these first Christians. Let's look at these Christians here in Colossae and let's see um, what the gospel produces in these new believers. Let's go to verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we, oh, here it is. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, this is not an Advent sermon, but it could be. Right? Because look at the fruit we see right there. Paul points out very specific fruit that the gospel has produced in these new believers. And he says this, I see faith in you, I see love in you, and I see hope in you. I see on the tree of your life, I could go up and I can pick that fruit. I see the fruit of faith, love, and hope in your life. Now, what is faith? First, we see him say, faith in Christ Jesus. Faith means a personal trust, right? So Paul's saying, you have personally come to believe the gospel. It's not just something that's happened in history. It's something that happened for you in history. And you have placed your faith, your personal trust in Jesus Christ, in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And now Jesus has become your new center. And then he follows this fruit of faith down and he sees this next one, love for the saints. Now, if you don't know, the saints are not some kind of special group of people. He's not, it's not like what the Catholic church would, would title the Catholic saints or the early church fathers. Saints is code word for other struggling, normal Christians, right? 
So we might not use that language very often. We say brothers and sisters most of the time around Sacred City. We don't really say the saints. But the Apostle Paul is looking here and he's saying, okay, I've seen or I've heard, because he's never been there, I heard that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Good, that's great. And then I saw from this faith an outworking of love toward other believers, towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the more I'm talk to people outside of the church, and I'm on mission to people in my gym and my neighbors, people often think that the church is made up of cookie-cutter people. Everyone is just conservative, and everyone has the same values, and everyone has the same hobbies, and everyone is, they all watch the same shows, right? They have all things in common. But if you get down and you study the church, and you study specifically the early church, and even the church today, you realize that that is the furthest thing from the truth. The church is actually made up of natural enemies who have been brought together and made family by the gospel. The church isn't people that all that would, without the gospel, they would just all hang out anyways. That's not the church. The church is pagan and Jewish people at this time, both being converted, completely different sense of morality, completely different worldviews. And they're all of a sudden now brought together in Christ by this thing called the gospel. And they're brought into a church and they're put in close proximity to one another. And they're said, now love each other. And Paul says, I know you're a Christian because look at your love there. Look, what, look how you're loving people that are different from you. See, the only thing we might have in common together is the fact that Jesus is our king. That's it. But here's what's cool. The reason the church can now dwell together in unity and you can take these natural enemies and you can put them together in this melting pot and it actually works is because when Jesus is our king, that becomes the most important thing about us. And it begins to change us and shape us and mold us into Jesus' image. Now, that means our, if Jesus is your king and Jesus is at the center of your world, Jesus becomes more central to us than our identity, to our identity than our politics. So if you understand the gospel correctly, you, if you're a Republican and yet you're a Christian, you have more in common with a Christian who's a Democrat than you do with a non-Christian who's a Republican. That means your Facebook feed, oh boy, should be more shaped by your identity in Christ than your politics. I know people who get together and they're in, they were in community with people and they really like each other and they're really going deep with one another and then they become Facebook friends. And then, oh, that, how, how could they be a Christian and put that about the president? Or how could they be a Christian and put that about this person? And their poli it seems like their Facebook world is more defined by their identity politics that they prescribe to than their faith in Jesus Christ. See, Christians actually have more in common with one another than we do with other Christians, than we do with people that share other affinities that we share. Other athletes, other accountants, other parents. We actually have more in common with Christians than we do with maybe even our neighbors who don't share our faith. So the Apostle Paul is tracing out kind of some evidence in their life. He's saying, okay, I heard of your faith. I've heard that now you're in this new community called the church full of people that are completely different from you and yet you're living like family and you're loving one another in very self-sacrificial ways. And then lastly, he says this. He kind, of, he kind of says, this is how you're doing it. He says, because of, so the reason you've got this faith and the re, or it's more specifically, the reason you've got this type of love towards people not like you is, quote, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, this is interesting. For at first glance, we would think, oh, the hope laid up for you in heaven. Oh, you're going to go to heaven when you die. 
That's, isn't that how we typically... Listen, you can self-sacrificially love one another because you don't have to get everything you're going to get right now. Eventually, all your sacrifice is going to pay off in heaven, right? That's kind of how we would typically interpret that. Except if we remember the new cosmology that Paul talked about last week. He's not just talking about our hope that one day our tears will be wiped away and one day we won't have sickness in our body and one day we get to see grandma and grandpa again. That's not what he's talking about. Who's in heaven? Jesus, specifically, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is there. God is there. And our hope is in heaven right now. So he's, tell, he's saying one of the reasons you guys are loving each other so well is because you're living with the power that, you're, that Jesus has got for you right now in heaven. Now he's at the right hand of God. Remember, we're in Christ. So in a sense, spiritually, we're there in him. And we can tap into that heavenly power right now. And we can live with that power in our here, and day, here everyday life. So do you see how the gospel got to work? And it changed these outsiders and it made them into Christians. It made them into a family. Paul says, here's the process. The gospel came to you. It was preached by Epaphras. That gospel produced faith in you. You made this faith your own by personally trusting in Jesus, by believing in it. Now that faith was evidenced by your love that you've shown to your church family. Jesus again said they would know us by our love for one another. You are able, and he's saying this, now you are able to love like this in this new family in such a sacrificial way because you have realized that your hope is laid up for you in heaven at the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is your hope. Now, it would be good for you to ask, and you may be asking this morning, hmm, am I a Christian? Now, that's a good question to ask. Maybe the most, it's probably the most important question of your life. But typically, when we ask ourselves that, we have an internal voice that actually usually brings us into error into interpreting the answer to that question. There's a few ways we typically err in answering that question. The first way we typically err is, the first thing that we do, am I a Christian, is we look at the sin in our life. Right? Am I a Christian? Well, how much do I sin? Right? Well, how good was I yesterday? How good was I this week? And we kind of go inside and we kind of look at the tree of our life and we, as we look for evidence of bad fruit. And we look on it and we say, oh, yep, I lied yesterday. Oh, yep, I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. Oh, yep, I lost my temper. Mm. Oh, I guess I'm not a Christian. No, when you want to answer the question, am I Christian? You don't look at the sin in your life for the answer. The sin will not tell you if you're a Christian, you're not. Nor should you say, hey, are you a Christian? Well, you know what? I'm trying. Don't say something like, well, yeah, I'm doing my best. To paraphrase Yoda here. When it comes to being a Christian, there is no try. You either are or you are not. See, nor can you go, are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. I'm American. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm a Republican. Of course I'm a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church. I know at least one Bible verse, right? No, you, you can't look at your family of origin or your culture for that answer. You can't say, I'm a Christian because I went to church my whole life. See, that's missing the point. From our text today, the Apostle Paul would say, hear how you can know if you're a Christian. Ask yourself this, has the gospel came to me? If you're here this morning... That answer is yes, at least in one way it has. It's coming right now, right? Has the gospel came to me? 
You're hearing the good news of what Jesus has done. Okay, yep, if you answer that, yeah, the gospel's came to me. Okay, secondly, ask yourself this. Do I believe it to be true? Was Jesus a man? Was Jesus the son of God? Did Jesus die on the cross? Did Jesus get up from death? Did Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father? Did Jesus send the Spirit? Is Jesus working right now? If you say, yeah, awesome. Then you say, all right, Jesus, I believe you're real. I believe you did that and you are doing that. Jesus, I believe the gospel is true. I put my faith in you. That's you kind of owning your faith, using your personal agency to say that is the gospel is objectively true and I believe it. Now listen, it doesn't mean you're going to feel anything. You're definitely not going to feel holy all of a sudden, right? You're definitely not going to all of a sudden just like got this two-way communication with Jesus where it's just Jesus on the other end of the telephone you pick up every morning, right? It doesn't work like that. Jesus, what kind of shoes should I wear today? No, it doesn't. What should I have for breakfast? No, it doesn't work that way. Okay, you might not feel anything in the moment. See, this is what it means to be a Christian, to become a Christian. The gospel comes to us. God even gives us this measure of faith and then we respond by using that faith and putting our trust in Jesus Christ. It's all about his life his death, his resurrection, look at, being count, look at this, being counted to you, being credited to you. That when you put your faith in him, his obedience gets credited to your account. Think of Jesus transferring his righteousness from his checking account into your checking account. A transfer. You open up your app, you know, you open up that banking app, you look at it, and you, whoa, there must be a mistake, but I'm not mentioning it to anybody, right? I got a couple extra zeros in there, but I, you know what? Let's just see if it, let's just ride this out, okay? That's what the gospel is. You put your faith in it, and your righteousness has now added many zeros. You got Jesus' righteousness transferred to your account. And so now when the Father looked at you, he sees the full bank account of Jesus Christ. Whoo, that's good news. So then you don't have to worry about when you sin. Did I just overdraft my account? There is more resources in Jesus' account than there is sin in your account. Use that debit card, but no, right? (laughs) Right? Now, what typically happens is somehow, somewhere along the line, Christians lose sight of this and they think Christianity is actually about trying harder rather than trusting Christ. And what that, what that is, is that becomes Jesus, here it is, plus moralism. And we don't even realize it happens, but moralism sneaks in there and we think we have to do something to keep up our relationship with Christ. Yeah, Jesus died for me and Jesus rose for me and Jesus credited my account, but I can't just go sin however I want, which is true, but that the little lie of Satan gets in there. So I better get to work proving myself again. And Martin Luther was famous to say that this is how the law sneaks back into the gospel or sneaks back into the Christian life. And the law always says, do this, and yet it's never done. The law says, do more, do more, do more, read more, read more, pray more, memorize more, love more, give more, sacrifice more, be better, try harder. And the reality is there is no end in sight for the law. The law is a slave master that will beat your back until the day you give up your last breath. And it will never say, you need a break, take it easy. The law will say, keep going, keep trying harder. So Martin Luther famously says, the law says, do this, and it's never done. The gospel says, believe in this, and everything is already done. That's good news. Now, so you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what you say, yeah, okay, have you done that? Then you're, then you're a Christian. 
Now, here's the reality. We don't stop there. This is day one. This is Christianity 101. We do move on from there. We do move out into deeper waters. And what's going to happen is that faith that, you, that, that God gave you and that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that faith is going to start working itself out in your life as love. Doing good things for others, especially your church family, especially your missional community. You're, he's going to ask you to shovel sidewalks. He's, the Lord is going to ask you to lay down your preferences for your brothers and sisters. Make something that's gluten-free and bring that to missional community. Right? He's going to ask you to do things like that that are loving the other and not loving yourself. And what you realize is as a Christian, because God loved us so exhaustively, Jesus gave up his very breath for us, his very life, his, all of his blood for us, that that love creates this self-sacrificial love working itself out in missional community. So honestly, how much should I love my neighbors? Yeah, all of it. As much as Jesus loved you. Now, here's the reality. That's not good for self-care. Okay? That's not good. That's not good for us, right? That the love of God compels us to love kind of exhaustively, to burn up our resources for others the way Christ did, right? So what, so what do we need? How do, how do we do that? That seems detrimental. That seems negative. That seems destructive. Well, Paul tells us here, this is why we can't do this in the flesh. This is why we have to tap into our hope, which is in heaven. We need spiritual resources. We need resources from God. We need God to meet some special needs in our soul in order to keep loving like this. Not just anybody can be in a missional community for six months. Try six years. Try 60 years. That's my goal, right? How, how can you do this over the long haul? How can you keep laying down your preferences and giving and sacrificing, loving and counseling? You have to tap into your hope, which is in heaven, which is Jesus Christ. Now, so here's what's going to happen. That's going to start wearing you out, right? You're loving others. It's going to start wearing you out. How many Christians in this room have ever felt worn out by the obligation to love others? Anybody? Oh, just a couple of you. Okay, cool. That's good, right? Now, that, what, what's this meant to do? Here, here it is. Us getting worn out by loving others is meant to deepen our dependency on the Lord. It's meant to, here it is, deepen our prayer life. You ever read a book on prayer? None of them start with this. Well, I was on the beach and uh, my life got, you know, my spiritual life went real deep real quick. Almost every book you read on prayer is really a book about suffering because suffering drives us deeper into our prayer life, into our relationship with God, right? We go to God when we realize our resources are broke. Our resources aren't enough. We can't do this anymore, right? And so we tap more and more into the reality of heaven that is available to us now in part that reality that will be fully ours in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's interesting here in our text that we get a firsthand example of how the gospel works even in the life of a mature believer. So if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, you've been worn out and you've been maybe burned out, maybe you are right now, we're going to get some help from the Apostle Paul here. So Paul, remember, he's in prison. Epaphras comes to him starts unloading his heart, kind of unburdening himself. But when you unburden yourself, that burden has to go somewhere. And that burden, of course, is coming on to the Apostle Paul. This is, of course, Apostle Paul's granddaughter church, right? Paul brought Epaphras to the faith. Epaphras has planted this church. So in Paul's sense of authority and a sense of obligation and responsibility, he feels responsible for this church. So Epaphras says, it's not going well, Paul. Right? Well, this is what interesting what Paul does. Paul processes that information given to him by Epaphras, filters it, and then responds in hope of bringing correction to the younger Christians. So Paul is kind of acting like a missional community leader. 
And he's, he's trying to help kind of from afar. But I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes just for a minute. Paul is in jail again. That means he's suffering. It's not like our jails. It's not three meals a day and cable TV and a little time out in the yard to pump weights and get swole, okay? He's more than likely hungry. If it's winter, he's freezing. One time he prays and he says, just bring my cloak with you. His one cloak. He's like, I'm freezing. Bring my one cloak with me. Right? If it's in winter, he's freezing. If it's in summer, he's burning up. He's being beaten. And it's all because he won't stop preaching the gospel. Now, the Apostle Paul by this time is also getting old. He's been doing this routine for a while, right? It's about time for this guy to go out to pasture, stop taking a beating for Jesus. It's like, retire, Paul. Paul's still doing it, though. He's still kicking. Now, here comes Epaphras with bad news. The church at Colossae is under spiritual attack. Christians are living immoral lives. Christians are mixing their faith with other things. Paul, this guy, he came to faith, came into the church, and now he's going back to the synagogue. He's going back to the law. He's going back to a different gospel. Paul, this guy came in, got saved, and then somebody else saw him Friday night at the cult prostitute's house. Can you believe this, Paul? I don't think we're going to make it another year. I don't know if we're going to last. I'm in this backwoods town. You sent me here, Paul. Ain't nothing good happening, Classe. The Greeks are winning. The Jews are winning, Paul. What are we going to do? Now, I can really resonate with Epaphras here. If you're an MC leader, you probably can too. Your huddle leader will ask you, how's it going? Hmm, how much time do you have? Right? How much time do you have? But Paul, Paul is an old gospel dog by this time, and he's no longer phased by squirrels. Okay? You see a little dog, a squirrel walks by, freaking out. You see no one, he's like, whatever. Right? That's the way Paul sees this right now. He's like, oh, okay. Let me say it like this. Paul is so steeped in the gospel He's been meditating on it. He's been living under its power for so long that it has literally changed the way he hears and he sees things. You could say it's changed his whole worldview. It's changed his cosmology, right? It's Paul now has what we would call around here, Paul has gospel eyes and gospel ears. Now, what does that mean? That means this. Epaphras gives him the lowdown. But as Paul processes this report, he takes it to the Father in prayer. He says he's praying to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He brings this frustrating and difficult situation into the presence of God because Jesus is there. Jesus is his mediator. And so he brings this frustrating situation up to God in prayer. And when he brings it up there, he, can, he is now able to see through the, the situation and he sees evidences of grace all through it. So much so that Paul begins this section by saying this, we always thank God when we pray for you. Epaphras probably got this letter going, what? No, he doesn't. Because later on, Epaphras says that, or Paul says Epaphras is praying for him, them all the time as well. Now, here's something that's important. Paul's prayer life was more than just worrying out loud. It was more than pouring out his anxieties to God. Prayer was almost like a gospel filter that sifted out all the issues of life and left behind evidences of God's grace that reminded Paul, no matter what is going on, God is on the move and Colossae. God is at work through the gospel. Paul says, when he, I mean, specifically, he hears all this negative stuff and it's like that coffee filter, 
right? You put the beans in the, or you put the ground beans in the coffee filter, you pour the water through it, and the water goes through, right? It makes coffee, and what's left behind is the ground. Paul does that, and he filters all of life through, and he can, he, what's left behind is these evidences of grace. So Paul says, he starts the letter off like this, we thank God always for you. We've heard of your faith. We've heard of the loving deeds that you're doing for the saints. We see your hope in action. All of this is evidence that the gospel is at work in your life, in your small struggling church, in your city. Now, folks, this is what Christian maturity looks like. It's gospel resolve. Gospel unflappability. Gospel encouragement all rolled up into one. Paul's not writing and saying, oh guys, it's not that bad. Turn your frown upside down. Feel better. Don't worry. Be happy. The economy will turn around. Maybe the highway will come back down and things will be, look better for us and your real estate prices will go back up. No, no, no. Paul says, the I see evidence that God is at work in you. I see God's fingerprints. I know the gospel is producing fruit in you and that should give you hope and that should give you joy and that should give you peace and that should put steel in your spine. Paul, man, it's so, and it just encourages them. Paul is not miffed here. He's not frustrated or fed up with these immature believers. He's not sitting in jail going, I'm in jail for preaching the gospel and you guys can't even live as part of a church? You can't stay true to the gospel? Come on, guys, suck it up. He's not. Paul, this is very convicting to me. Paul is able, after spending time with God in prayer, to actually encourage these sinning saints. It reminds me, I'm reading in my, my Bible reading plan and I'm working through Genesis and it reminds, or I've just got through Genesis, I'm in Exodus and I'm reminded of Joseph. Joseph goes through all of this awful things and then his brothers are standing before him and his brothers are quaking in their boots because they've sinned against him and they threw him, they gave him away, they sold him into slavery and Joseph looks at him and says, listen, I, I know you meant it for evil, but God meant this for good to bring about the salvation of many people. Paul in prison has got a gospel lens like that. Christian, this is the type of person that the gospel will make you into as you continue to grow in your understanding and experience of it. Listen, the news wants to get you stirred up. The gospel makes you unflappable. The news wants to stir you into a frenzy and really believe that the government's about to do whatever you think it's about to do. And listen, governments have been doing bad stuff since governments were created. They've been killing people. They've been doing all kinds of horrible things. And that stuff might actually come to pass. But guess what? The gospel gives us an unflappability. Do you desire to be more patient? Do you want to be able to see through the difficulties of life and be able to encourage someone even in the midst of great discouragement? Do you want to be a peaceful, prophetic presence that when you walk into the room, you bring a calm, you bring a stability? Do you want to be the type of person who can see God's fingerprints in your own life and in the lives of others even when they're suffering? Here it is. All of this starts, the Apostle Paul shows us this, with a prayer life that takes the truths of the gospel and the experience of life and marinates them together in unhurried silence and solitude with God the Father. You might call this gospel meditation. 
but it's not an Eastern form of meditation where you are, you're seeking to empty the mind. Rather, it's gospel meditation. You're filling the mind with the truth of the gospel and you're letting it marinate. You're letting it filter, right? You, you got the gospel and it's shaping the way you're thinking and it's shaping the way you're seeing life. And then the issues of life come through that filter, and you're, it gives you the ability to process the experience of life and see the evidences of grace in your own life and those that you're on mission to. This is what it means to let the gospel change you. We, we don't go to God and we don't spend a few minutes in the morning and, and, and just to get something from God or somehow give us like, help us be more moral that day. We're spending time with God so he can literally change the way that we think, so he can change the way that we see the world, so he can change the way we interact with other people. That's the way the gospel changes us. And it's such a joy to be able to sit across the table from someone who has an imagination that's been changed by the gospel. You're having coffee with someone and they share something with you and you can see what's wrong with the story and you can speak the gospel. You can speak hope and life and peace and joy into the situation. You can tell that person how Jesus is actually good news for them, how Jesus can give them what they're looking for or heal them where they're hurt. This is what the gospel wants for us. Missional community leaders, this is what the gospel wants to do in us like the apostle Paul. Now, let's just pray that it doesn't take prison to make it happen, Okay. We can have a deep prayer life without prison. But it might take getting up an hour early. It might take putting the phone on do not disturb. It might take missing out on some Netflix shows. That's what it might take. It might take throwing the phone in a box when you get home and going for a walk. This is the work. The gospel is not something we just receive once and move on. It's something that's continually at work in us, meant to take us to deeper and deeper levels like the Apostle Paul. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the work that you are doing right now, giving faith to dead people, spiritually lifeless individuals. You are giving them faith. You are bringing them to new life. We thank you for the work that you've been doing in our church, and we thank you for the work that's going forth in all the world, the work of restoration that, Jesus, you are going to bring it about in our world. And I pray that you would do that even faster in our city. You would do it in the quad cities as it is in heaven, Father. That we, don't, we don't have to believe that the world is just getting bad, worse and worse and worse. We believe that you can break in and you can do something unique and special and powerful in our life and in our city in our day. And we ask that you would do it. Do it for your glory and our joy, Father. And now as we come to partake of this meal, this meal that looks back and looks forward, Father, we, we want to eat in hope. We want to eat in joy, knowing that your righteousness has been credited to us and that you do not look at us as um, just as broken sinners any longer, but you look at us through the righteousness of Christ. Jesus himself said that this bread that is broken is his body and the, and the, the, the wine and the juice in the cup is his blood. And this covers us, covers our sins. It makes us white as snow. And so, Father, this morning we eat in faith that the gospel is at work even now in our life, in our church, and in our city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.